Welcome to the First Pres podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you would like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Vonda. We rest on the goodness of the Lord. Everything that we have, if it weren't for the goodness of the Lord, where would we be? And we know His goodness this morning. Friends, we finished this series, Who Knows? Seven Stories to Inspire, looking at Isaiah. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 as we look at, uh, at this prophet, Isaiah, and, uh, and, and we sort of ask, who knows what could happen when God writes Himself into the story? We're looking at Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. And as we turn to the Scriptures, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, this morning we pray, we pray, we know that we rest on your goodness and we pray because if we open your Bible and and we just see dead letters on the page, Lord, then we're lost. And so we pray that you would open your word to us, that we could hear from you and know your presence in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. I've been thinking about um, taking one of those DNA tests. How many of you have taken one of those DNA tests? Any big surprises? Big surprises? A few? <laughs> I love the commercials. There's one, there's one commercial where a guy has uh, been living his whole life thinking he was Scottish and he had all these kilts and all these things and going to all these festivals. And then he takes the test. He finds out he's German. So he has to go and, and uh, buy a bunch of lederhosen. There's a, there's a commercial out there now of uh, a beautiful young lady, deep olive complexion and she's running uh, around jumping in these frozen lakes and saunas and things. She found out she's 3% Swedish. So she's 
living into that. I have a friend named Ruben who's Latino, and he told me, Tim, I found out that when I took the test, I found out I'm 10% Native American, 4% African. And he said, I just, I just look at myself differently. I look at, you know, everything kind of differently, knowing that that's, that's part of who I am. But then he said, but he said, be careful. So he said, a friend of mine in church uh, took the test, and she found out that her dad was not her dad. Her neighbor was. Which, he said, explained why he was so nice to her growing up. <laughs> Which we might laugh, but that was not funny to her. And then there's all these stories about the DNA tests and someone gets arrested because they submitted DNA and they get arrested for some past crime. But I don't, I don't have any skeletons like that in my closet. I don't think. But the one that I like the most is this latest one. It's a, a woman who um, finds out that she's directly descended from an African tribal queen, and she starts to say kind of to this descendant, I mean, this, for, this foremother, she says, oh, if you're in my blood, if that's who I am, if I belong to you, well, then I can do this. And she marches confidently into to some business meeting or other or something. And I like that. I love that. We, when we know our stories, it gives us a little strength. We gain strength from our stories. A few years ago, research revealed that knowing your family story is critical to your emotional health. A team in Emory University in Atlanta developed a 20-question do you know quiz? Uh, things like, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your, your parents fell in love? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school, um, their first job? Do you know a moment when your family hit hard times? And they, they asked a large sample of children these, these 20 uh, do you know questions, and they got all this research compiled. And then one month after they were done with their research project, September 11th hit. And it was terrible, it was, it was horrible, but what the researchers realized was that all of a sudden, every child they had sampled had suffered the same trauma in the same way at the same time. And so they went back quickly, and they went to each of these, these children, and they assessed how they handled going through this national disaster, this national trauma. And what they found, the research that they found was very clear to them that the single best predictor of children's emotional health, resilience, and happiness was knowing their family story. Knowing their family story. It's graduation season, it's into school season, it's wedding season, it's all these things that are happening, all these new adventures. It's that time when we get out the old Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, and we read Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself whatever direction you choose. Very good. It's a season of, of just opening up new adventures, broad possibilities, the future. But you know, it's also a moment that we get to tell stories. Tell some stories. Today we close out our series, Who Knows? 
Who knows? Saying God is in my story and my story is in God. And over and again we have seen how God has moved into people's stories and how people have come to know that they're part of God's great story. And finally, today, I want to make very clear one thing. And we'll do it looking at the prophet Isaiah. I I want to make very clear, I want you to understand one thing that may be the most important message, the most critical message for your emotional health, for your very life, for your very soul. One thing that we must absolutely know, and it is this. Jesus is God writing himself into the story. Jesus is God writing himself into the story, into the story of of the world, the, the human story, but writing himself into your story if you trust and believe in him. The story of Isaiah we just read is an intensely personal spiritual experience. You read that, you almost forget that Isaiah is a normal human being. That he's just a, just a guy just like you and me. If he were here today, he'd be sitting in one of these pews just like you, wearing clothes and shoes. He's not 10 feet tall. He'd be probably shorter than you are, you know. He'd, he's just a normal guy. But this is no normal moment. This is the moment Isaiah came to know the Lord. It's a vision. If you've never read this before, you should mark this page. You should save this this page. You should reread this when you get home. This is one of the most famous moments of someone coming to know God in the entire Bible, and it's a vision. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And what I saw is a fullness, and what I saw is a glory, and what I saw was something that filled up the whole space. I saw the Lord. Have you come to a realization of God? That God is there. Have you you felt the presence of God? Have you had a sense that that God is, sometimes you say it like Isaiah, I saw God and it overwhelmed me. But sometimes we say things like, I just knew that God was there. I just had a sense of the presence of God. I just knew that that there's something more, that God is present, kind of the way that you know that a friend has come up behind you, even before you turn around. I just knew that God was there. Isaiah knew the presence of God. But more than that, Isaiah saw a little bit about who God is. Verse 2, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook 
The temple was filled with, can you imagine this place? Shaking with the presence of God. And these seraphim, they're calling out to one another. God had servants around him, seraphim, some kind of angel, some kind of heavenly being. And the seraphim covered their, their faces and, and, they, and they flew with their wings and they covered their, their feet over. You see, your feet are not the most beautiful part of you. I hate to tell you, you might, you might, some of you might be just, just chomping at the bit. It's summertime, I get to show everybody my feet. But a lot of us would just assume, just keep them kind of covered up. These seraphim, these, these servants of God, these angelic beings who serve the Lord in perfect obedience, even in their, their sinlessness, their obedience to the Lord, even them, they cover their eyes. They say, Lord, you're too holy for me to look upon. They cover their feet. They say, Lord, you're too holy to, to see my imperfections, to see. They cover themselves over and they cry out to the Lord, holy, holy, holy. They give God the, the three times holy, the triple holy, See, in Hebrew, you can use an adjective or you can, you can pile a word on top of, of another word just to give it more emphasis. And, and they, they want to give God the three times holy. It's not so different from, uh, you know, from us. You might have commented on Instagram about a pic. He's not just cute. He's cute, cute, cute. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. They triple it up. You see, the angels say he's holy, holy, holy. He, he's, he's holy three times holy, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we would say in a New Testament knowledge. God is holy beyond any kind of sense that we can grasp or imagine, three times holy. In the glory, it fills the temple, it fills the whole earth, it shakes the foundations. See, Isaiah is in the presence of God. Immediately, he hits his knees. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, says I. This is not a sanctimonious moment. This is not uh, something any other than what you or I would, would experience if we were in that moment. When we saw the Lord, we knew His presence, we knew His holiness, we would immediately be on our knees because we say, what? I'm a man of, I know myself, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a, an unclean culture of unclean speech and I'm just I'm what Isaiah knows about himself you see is that he's before a holy God and what he knows about himself is that he's a sinner so Isaiah he assumes that what he's seeing right now is going to be the last thing he sees God had said to Moses in Exodus 33 no one may see me and live. Isaiah is, oh crud, he says. <laughs> oh, woe is me. He's, he's thinking of that, you know that joke about what's the last thing that goes through a mosquito's mind when he hits the windshield? 
Ask your friend after church. (laughs) Isaiah thinks this is it. And what he thinks is, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips, living in an unclean world. And suddenly I'm in front of a holy and all-powerful God. When the light of the presence of God shines on you, Maybe you've sensed his presence. Maybe you've known or thought that God was there when the light of the presence of God shines on you. Well, then all of a sudden, you're exposed. And all of the things that, that, you, that, you, were, that you were setting you know, apart, that you were hiding, that you were trying to cover up with some success, all of those things, they're suddenly, they're suddenly exposed. And, and your whites, your whitest whites, don't look so white compared to that and all of your sins all of your stains are on display what Isaiah is thinking is what we all should be thinking that me and my perfections my imperfections me and my my stains me and my my sins my crimes my outright crimes against what is right they don't belong in the presence of a holy 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 God, and it would make perfect sense if the next thing that happened were my destruction. See, here I am, and I'm suddenly like a shadow in front of a bright light. I'm suddenly like cold in front of a great heat. I'm undone. It's over. Peter had the same experience when he saw the face of Jesus in his boat in Luke chapter 5, and he knew the presence of God. When Simon Peter saw this, it says, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And when you know the presence of God, you have this moment where you say, I'm a sinner. And sinner versus a holy God, I'm undone. I'm exposed. Isaiah hits his knees in a spirit of confession, but watch what happens next. Verses six and seven. Then one seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Friends, I hope you've got your Bibles open on your laps. I wish I had a whole sermon on these two verses, six and seven, and I want to run through some things very quickly because this is God, this is redemption, this is forgiveness, this is God demonstrating his heart of love right here in verses six and seven of Isaiah. Look what happens. Number one, number one, forgiveness comes, watch now, forgiveness comes from God to Isaiah. Do you see that? God brings atonement to us, not us to God. Everything in us wants to make up for our sins. Everything in us wants to justify ourselves. Everything in us wants to make a sacrifice, some offering where we can please God or appease God. God or, or the gods or the universe or whatever and even, even obligate God to return favor to us. Everything in us wants to justify ourselves but God brings forgiveness 
to us, not us to God. It's God who comes to us with forgiveness, not us who go to God with justification. You see, you can't, you can't uh, offer or behave or work your way into forgiveness. But God can forgive. God can forgive. Number two, watch this. The live coal comes from the altar. Now, an altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is a place where flesh and blood are poured out, and they, and they come to the fire and are consumed and lifted to the heavens. Listen now. It isn't that there was no sacrifice. The coal comes from the altar. The altar is there before the holy God. It isn't that there was no sacrifice. It's that you and I didn't make the sacrifice. The angel, he picks up the coal from the altar and he carries it. He carries it. The live coal. And number three, it's it's intimate. When the angel comes along and he touches Isaiah's lips. He touched my mouth, says Isaiah. It's intimate. That's the love of God. It's intimate. It's as vulnerable as a kiss. That's how close the heart of God is to you, each of you, this morning. He loves you. He's with you. The altar brings a coal, and the coal, it comes, touches his lips. And the angel says, number four, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The seraphim declares this as he touches, as he kisses, as he, as he comes to Isaiah, and he brings the, alt, the coal from the altar, and he touches, and he says, your sin is atoned for and your guilt is taken away. Away. Now, on what grounds? On what basis can a seraphim, a perfect servant of the Lord, on what grounds can an angel say to Isaiah, your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for, that it's been paid for by someone else? What grounds does the angel have to say such a thing? See, a sacrifice has been made to make up for, to atone for your sin. And the angel can say that. Why? Because God already sees the sacrifice of Jesus, his son on the cross. A sacrifice has been made. Your sins are forgiven. Your sin, your sin is, not a, is not a mistake or a misunderstanding or a lesser choice. Understand this now. Your sin is a crime. It's a crime against God's law. When you come to the Lord and you confess your sins, don't come to the Lord and just confess bad feelings or missed opportunity or a vague sense of dissatisfaction. Your sin is a crime against God's law. And when we come in the presence of the Lord and we wish to confess our sins, what we do is we list. We say, Lord, uh, as, as far as I know, as far as I can see, in accordance with your word and the conviction of your Holy Spirit, I have, have committed a crime against your law. I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. And I know, Lord that I broke your law, and I confess. I fess up. 
You know it all anyway. Here's my record. And you lay it before the Lord. And what does the angel say? He turns to you and he says, your sin has been atoned for. It's been made up for. Not by you, but a sacrifice has been made on your behalf. Your sin has been atoned and your guilt is forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. You see, when God forgives sins, he doesn't leave you in them. He takes them away from you. He he takes your guilt away. Don't walk around in your shame and guilt. It says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Oh, friends, we need to memorize that verse. You need to read that whole psalm. God takes your guilt away. Lastly, can I just emphasize at these two verses what the seraphim tells Isaiah to do? What's his command? What's the word? What does it say? He says, See. He says, see. See that this has touched your lips. See that your guilt is is taken away. See that your sin is atoned for. Can you see it? It matters almost nothing until you see it. Do you see it? Do you know it? What God has done through Jesus' son. Finally, Isaiah If you can't tell, oh, I love this passage. This is it, friends. This is it. This is the heart of it. And finally, Isaiah is commissioned. You see, he's not just saved from. He's not just saved from his sins. He's saved for the mission of God. Then I heard a voice, verse 8, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. It's not a prideful thing. Isaiah is saying, Lord, I'm your slave. I'm your servant. I belong to you. Whatever you want. My life is yours. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that is the shape of every worship service we hold here at First Press. That's the shape of it. We come in, we gather together, and we know the presence of God. He reveals his presence to us. We hit our knees and we confess. We confess our sins together and individually. We know the forgiveness of God because of what he's done through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. And we declare that forgiveness. And then we receive his word. His word is received in our hearts. And then we go out on the mission of God that he has for our lives. That's what we do every time we gather. That's what we rehearse of the kingdom of God. These are the dance steps we learn in the wedding banquet of the king. And we do it over and over. Do you want me to dance a little bit? Probably not. Yeah, thank you. Wise. Wisdom up front. Isaiah's commission. Well, Isaiah's commissioned with a message, and the message God gave Isaiah, I think you know, was profound. More than any other prophet, more than any other person, God gave Isaiah a vision of the coming Jesus. Therefore, he said, you know, look at Isaiah 7. Uh, uh, Therefore, he said, I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Isaiah 53 shows us the crucifixion, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, he made the sacrifice, and by his wounds we are healed. Even the resurrection, 
Isaiah 60, verse 1, says, Arise, arise, come up again and shine. Your light has come. Jesus said on the light of the world, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Isaiah didn't even know fully what he foresaw, but by his pen, the entire plan of salvation was written down for all of us. And do you know what it was? It was this. God, in Jesus, was writing himself into the story to save and to rescue you. Dorothy Sayers is a great uh, novelist, kind of a philosopher. She wrote a series of novels about a character detective named Peter Whimsey, Lord Peter Whimsey. And about halfway through this series of detective novels, a character shows up named Harriet Vane. But everybody knows that Harriet Vane is actually just a thinly veiled uh, characterization of Dorothy Sayers herself. This, this character that shows up, Harriet Vane, is a detective novelist and one of the first graduates, women to get a degree from Oxford University. I mean, everybody knows it's Dorothy Sayers. And Lord Peter, Peter Whimsey, you see, he was... Uh, he was stuck. He was, in a, he was sad. He was miserable. He was lonely. He was self-destructive. But Harriet Vane shows up and changes all that when they fall in love. See, Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into the series to save her dear character Peter from self-destruction. That's a little bit what God has done. There's an argument about whether Rembrandt subtly painted himself into his works in different characters in the background. Alfred Hitchcock shows up in all of his films, you know. And now Stan Lee, the Marvel Comics genius who created all these characters, he cameos in every one of these movies. He shows up somewhere, you watch for him. That's all fun, that's all fun. Write yourself into the story. But Harriet saves Peter, you see. God is in my story. Jesus is God writing himself into our story. When our story had gone desperately wrong, we were headed for destruction of our own making, but God wrote himself into the story by giving us his son Jesus. Unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What Isaiah saw is that God was writing himself into our story. He was not going to leave us to wander off into our own dead end, our own self-destruction, but he was not going to let us go where our story was leading. No, he, he wrote his son into the story as a savior. And in his son, Jesus Christ, God runs ahead and he takes that death that's meant for us. He takes it upon himself and carries it to the cross. And then he rose again. He rose again so that all who follow him with no eternal life. Your story doesn't have to end in death. Your story can end in the eternal life that Jesus died for. Friends, maybe you know that already today. Maybe you know that and you just want to celebrate that. But maybe there's someone here this morning that you've never heard it that way and you've never thought about Jesus that way. 
I want to talk to you for just a minute. Maybe you've grown up in the church and this is just a moment where you're seeing something clearly you've never seen before. I want to talk to you just for a minute. Of all that we've talked about over the last few weeks, or maybe you've just come here this morning and this is it, you sense the presence of God. Friends, he's here. We don't fake that. We don't know how to artificially create that. We don't simulate that. If you sense the presence of God, I want to speak to you this morning. He's here. And I want to encourage you. Hit your knees. Confess. Open your heart to him. He's right here. He loves you. The sacrifice has been made. Your sins have been forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. And you can know eternal life in Jesus Christ. I want us to offer a prayer together. I'm going to ask you to just follow me in prayer. And maybe for you, you've prayed to the Lord many times in your life. Great. Pray along. We want to all pray along. But maybe for you, this is your first time of opening up your mouth, your voice to speak to the Lord. I want to ask everyone to pray along with me. And if this is your prayer, then you say it directly to the Lord. But let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And let's pray together straight across the church, praying together in one voice. Almighty God, thank you that you do not leave me behind. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus into my story. Forgive my sins. Receive my soul. Help me to know and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.first-prez.org.